in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I'm actually going to break the order of my notes to tell you before we read the scripture, I want to tell you what we're jumping into today. So in Luke 20, Jesus is having this long-term sort of debate argument thing with some of the religious leaders, and they're just fuming. So we're going to drop into it right after this story beforehand. But Jesus has essentially just hinted that all of the prophets that were sent to the people of God that were killed, he's, he's relating the religious leaders to, to those, one, those guys who murdered the prophets. And he's saying, you know, he gives this parable about a landowner who sends you know, representative after representative and eventually sends his own son and that they're going to kill this son as well. So Jesus is saying, hey, you killed all the prophets and now the son is here. What are you going to do? And so they're fuming. And that's where, that's where it brings us to our text for today. So we're going to be reading Luke 20. I call this the clever Jesus section. There's three or four moments in a row, just absolute burns. It's great. Um, so Luke 20, verses 20 through 26, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. I, this is one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. And I have realized that a lot of people miss one of the huge gems that's in it. So we'll, we'll get to that in a bit here. But I want to prop this up. So what we're doing is we're dropping into a debate. And that's maybe the closest word we have for it in English. But if you go to the Mediterranean still today, there's a slightly different feel around debates, and it's still alive. Scholars talk about this, how around the Mediterranean and in parts of the Middle East, there's this sort of pricking culture where people are constantly throwing jabs at each other, and it's more of a status measurement. It's like a, it, we, the closest thing we have is a debate, but it's somehow, you know, how someone will passive aggressively will say something like, oh, well, you know, we don't have the money to buy something like that. And then the other person's like, oh, but I got it on sale. You know how we do that thing here? That's maybe also in the same kind of genre of someone will say something that's clearly an attack but they don't state it like an attack. So this is kind of their, it's like a game. They're always constantly prodding, and then the, the idea is, you know, who's going to win, the one who's prodding or the one who's answering? And this is a custom back then. They're always doing this to Jesus. So they're furious. He's basically said that now the son has come and you're going to kill him too. Uh, so they want to kill him, but they can't just kill Jesus. They need a reason. And so they embark on trying to set this trap for Jesus. Now, uh, one, of the thing, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I love this passage is that I actually remember, unlike almost any other biblical passage, I actually remember the very first time I read it. Uh, I was 18 years old, and I was backpacking Europe. So I started reading the Bible when I was 17, and I hadn't, uh, someone had told me that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were similar. Um, it's probably, in a way, true, but it's also a disservice, because what I did then is I, I spaced them out and left Luke till the end. Um, and I remember the first time I read this, my brother and I were backpacking Europe, and we were going between, I think it was like Switzerland and France. I just, I know it was toward the end of our 
trip. And I remember he, this is, this is 2005, so you know, no one had smartphones, and he was planning the next leg of our trip with one of those like Frommer's books or you know, travel books or something. And I was sitting and reading my old you know, red hardcover Bible, and I remember reading through these sections and just being blown away. I was on one of those Euro, Eurail things where you, uh, you pay for a pass and you can go on any train in Europe. Uh, funny thing is, the day I got to Europe, I thought that that counted for the subways as well, and the Italian police did not think so. Uh, so <laughs> I will never forget how to say 51 euros in Italian. <laughs> anyway, that was the fine that I had to pay. Anyway, uh, I remember the very first time I read this and just thinking how brilliant Jesus was on that train to Lyon or Paris. So they're trying to set him up. They're, they're trying to flatter him to at least have an audience with Jesus. They, they're kind of groveling, and they say, you know, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So this is just kind of brown-nosing. It's the setup. And then here's the challenge. They say, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, some, I, I often will preach from the ESV, and they have uh, a phrase in here called pay tribute. And uh, it's, it's a fine translation, but it's just confusing because we've never been a conquered country before. So we're like, pay tribute, tribute, it uh, means to honor someone, uh, whatever. We don't, we don't get it. So I actually prefer this translation of paying taxes. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because we do pay taxes, and it, it, it makes it relevant for us. Because pay tribute, we're kind of like, eh. I'll toss it away. I don't know what it's talking about. It's weird. It's ancient. Moving on. But uh, what it essentially is, is a tax. It's a vassal state. You're conquered by a conquering enemy, and now you have to pay a tax because you're subservient. And so they're saying, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so you might be thinking, well, what's the challenge there? What's the real trap? What's what's the setup? And in essence, uh, every time they ask Jesus a question, they have always concocted a lose-lose situation. There's some that are really brilliant, um, but this one is just, I'd say, fairly, this is a common debate question of the day, and there was really no win. It wasn't like somebody had a winning answer to this. Uh, no one had a win answer to this. So it's kind of a lose-lose. Uh, and for us, it might be hard to understand, because if somebody were to ask you, hey, can you pay taxes to the government? I mean, about 98% of people wouldn't see sort of a real, really any debate there. They'd be like, well, yeah, well, who else is going to pay for the roads, the school, the military, Social Security? There are some people who would maybe have issue with it, but most people just realize, yeah, taxation, right? Death and taxes, they're the certainties in life. But if you want to jump into a first century Jewish mind, this is the issue that's so tricky about paying taxes. So imagine here we are today, but a foreign superpower came and took us over long into the future. Imagine they removed our elected leaders and instead put their own puppets in who basically were subservient to their emperor. So now we're a subjected vassal state. And imagine if their ruler claimed to be God. Imagine if their ruler claimed to be divine and then demanded tribute from you, but would only take tribute from you in the form of a coin with the ruler's image on the coin. So this is kind of, this is what they're dealing with. And you know how, what the Old Testament says about graven images and idols and all the rest. And so this is what's, what's going on with this, that the, the very money they had to use, even to have a seat at the table, the, the money they had to use even to buy bread, had the image of Tiberius Caesar on it. And I kid you not, the coin said this in Latin. I'll, this is the English. I won't read the Latin to you. It'd be embarrassing for all of us. Um, the English said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. 
And so you could see how to a first century Jewish audience, paying taxes would feel very different than when we're just sort of contributing part of our paycheck for all the services that most of which we take part in. Instead, they feel like they're committing an act of idolatry every time they even go to the market. So here is the huge debate. Do you pay taxes and potentially be an idolater, breaking the first and second commandment by using these coins that are idolatrous, that say that somebody else is God? Or do you say not to pay taxes to Rome? And remember, you're this vassal state, you're a conquered nation. So do you say don't pay taxes, and that ends up making you a usurper or a nationalist, a zealot, you might remember that some of the disciples are called zealots in the New Testament. They would have believed it's never okay to pay taxes to Rome. There's only one king, and that's God, and if we recognize any other earthly ruler, that's wrong. So they would have been on this side of the debate. So it's a classic lose-lose. You're either an idolater, or you are a warmongering revolutionary who needs to be put to death. And if Jesus were to answer either way, he would immediately lose his credibility as a rabbi. And frankly, like I said, nobody could answer it that well. So probably what they're hoping for is that he accidentally gets himself into checkmate and actually takes a side on this issue. Uh, but more likely, they, they probably realize that he's just going to stay silent. That's, if you prod somebody and they don't come back with a great debate, they just kind of, they don't have an answer, they can stay silent. That's acceptable in the rules of this ancient game, but you still kind of lose. If you don't answer, it's kind of shown that you don't know what you're doing. So they're expecting that Jesus won't actually shoot himself in the foot here, but that he'll stay silent. But then Jesus turns one of the most brilliant responses, not only in the Bible, I actually think maybe in all of human literature, this is the most brilliant. It's a, a crazy burn and also a quotation of scripture at the same time, and it's just, oh man, it's awesome. I live for this passage. <laughs> all right, so it says, Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, that's just like one day's uh, labor for one day's, it's worth one day's wages. So today, you know, it might be worth somewhere between 80 and $140, depending on, you know, the hourly rate at a certain job or something. Uh, so he, it says, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him and what he said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. So all the times that they prod Jesus, that they kind of challenge him, he ends up just owning them so badly that they all give up. They're like, eh, I'm not going to try that again. That was really bad. Um, and his answer is actually really profound, and I've discovered that uh, most people miss this because it's, there's such a gem here, and a lot of people miss it. And what's surprising is even some of the, like the scholars who treat this book will not talk about it, which I always found just amazing. But a lot of the church fathers and people talk about this. So anyway, I want to share this gem that I found in this passage. So when he says, uh, whose image is on the coin, whose image and inscription, it's the word in Greek. I don't quote Greek words too often because I don't want you to think you need to know Greek to truly understand the Bible. You don't. But the word he uses is interesting. He says, whose icon is on it? It's where we get the word icon. It doesn't exactly mean icon back then like it does for us. But you could see how the word it, you know, shares some similarity. He says, whose image, whose icon is on it? And then they look down and say, well, Caesar's. And this is what people miss. He doesn't even finish the teaching. He doesn't have to go there. Uh, so when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, there's this whole unspoken second part of that phrase. He's saying, okay, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God 
what is God's. And he doesn't have to tell them what is God's because he's saying, whose acorn, whose image is on this coin? And then it leads the, the hearer to say, okay, so give back to God what is God's. Well, what is God's image on? What is his acorn on? And he's clearly quoting Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's one of the greatest passages for our time. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. It's the same word, akon, here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And in Genesis 1, it's that same word again. Though, though Genesis was written in Hebrew, most of the people in Jesus' day were using Greek as their translation of choice to debate the Old Testament. So he is directly quoting Genesis here, you know, give... Give back to Caesar whatever coins he wants. It's just metal. He put his face on it, whatever. Give that back to him. New empires will come and go. New emperors will come and go. I mean, no one here is speaking Latin anymore, right? So he's just saying, whatever the world creates, yeah, you can give that back to them. But give God what is God's. We know that the word of God never fails, and his church will never fade away. And he's saying, if, if the image is Caesar's on the coin, well, then what image is on what, where is God's image? And it's clear to everyone in the audience that God's image is on us, right? So he's saying, give back to God what is God's, which is you, it's us. How much more ought we to give God the very thing that bears his image, which is our, whole, our own lives, our whole selves? So he's making this point here that the image of God is, a, is sort of a mandate to give back to God what is his, and that's all of us. So your time, I mean, think of your, your time in prayer. <laughs> they always say the quickest way to humble a pastor is to ask them about their prayer lives. Uh, yeah, so time in prayer, uh, service to the poor, how you actually spend your time, you know, how, how much of it is on, I don't want to call out any specific hobbies as a waste of time, but let's just, let's just imagine, you know. <laughs> One time, I, uh, I, one time I threw, I think, the show Survivor under the bus, and I felt bad because like, there's nothing particularly wrong with like, enjoying a show that's whatever. But yes, you get what I'm saying. Um, you know, your finances belong to God. Think about you know, giving, giving to churches, giving to charities, giving to the poor, whether directly or inviting them over for meals, not hoarding your resources. Um, and <laughs> for whatever reason, God has led me to a lot of people who have struggled with their sexuality. Um, by the grace of God, he's just brought a lot of people into my lives who have struggled with this. And um, I was meeting with somebody recently who, who wants to follow biblical teaching on sexuality and, and knows that that's right. And I was just so, I was so proud of this person for following, following God, following the image of God in him as the basis for what is right, for what is true, and submitting everything else to God, you know, whether his finances or prayer, but also sexual desires, you know, that they're not in line with what he believes to be the teaching of Jesus, with what we believe. Um, and so this is, this is all part of the image of God. What, is, what does it mean to follow truth or to be ethical is to have God at the very foundation of your being and that everything else is submitted to him. Your talents, I encourage you to use your talents for the glory of the kingdom of God. Whether that be, you know, here and like the more, you know, clear example, like serving on the worship team and stuff like that, a lot of pastors will go there. But just think of your career, think of the things that you're good at. I would really encourage you, whether through Capital City or some other organization, to use your talents for the kingdom of God in St. Paul. Your passions, your family life, 
uh, and your hobbies as well. Um, you've heard me talk about these two by two ministries. This is the, the, the ministry that's sort of been like hobbling to a start, um, but use your hobbies for God. I really encourage you to think about the things you're interested in and join a club in the city and start to get to know people who don't know Christ or who don't know him well. And you can show up these clubs depending on your own interests, you know, windsurfing or whatever it might be, and just plug in, enjoy it, do it well, maybe not that in the winter, uh, but get to know other people. Use your hobbies so that you can get to know more people. And then as the months go on, you can share real life with them, have them over for meals, and uh, you can start to share the gospel with them. Not in like a bait and switch kind of a way, but in a real friendship kind of way. One of the reasons I like this passage so much is that I think the image of God might be the most important issue that if, if you can study up and, and sort of feel comfortable with what it means that we are created in the image of God, you can be ready to answer a whole slew of questions. And I'd say about two-thirds of the sticky issues that the church is going through today all go back to what it means to be made in the image of God. So much of what we struggle with goes back to that. I mean, just think of just some of some things that came to mind on both sides of the aisle, different you know, issues here. So think of beginning of life and end of life issues. The image of God, the idea that we are created in his image is huge. And not just that, this is a pet peeve of mine, um, for a long time in the West, a lot of people have assumed that the image of God is the ability to think, essentially. The ability to reason, to make art, poetry, whatever. And it's so cheap because it's the, the people who write ethics books, the people who write philosophy, the people who write history, literally make their living doing that very thing. So when they're opining on like, well, what might the image of God be? That's like my career, I guess. That's probably the image of God. And it's just so cheap. And it, we know this. I think our knee-jerk reaction is to maybe think in that reason category. But we also know that the baby in utero, that the elderly person in the last stages of Alzheimer's disease who can barely recognize their own family, that they are just as much created in the image of God as the professor who is writing books. Uh, so the image of God is not your ability. It is the fact that you are created in God's own kind. So it's like, if my son, one of my sons, isn't the most smart kid, you know, the smartest kid, most smart, isn't the smartest, <laughs> yeah, that's great, uh, if he's not the smartest kid in his class, it doesn't mean that I love him any less, right? Because he is my son. It's, what makes him mine isn't that he's got all these talents or abilities to reason or whatever. It's that he's my son, right? And it's the same with us, that our ability, our mental clarity is not what makes us in the image of God. It's the fact that we are in God's kind, that we are made from him and by him to be his ambassadors to the world. So that's beginning and end of life. Those are huge. Uh, just think of Education in all of its facets for the opportunities for children who maybe don't have um, as easy of a go of it as many of us here. Um, when you think about the contributions to education, that there's something huge to be said about the image of God. There's a, there's a critique of the evangelical church, and it's very, I, think, I think there's something to be said of it. Um, people will say, the evangelical church cares about black and brown babies when they're in the womb, but as soon as they're born, they don't want anything to do with them. Think of that. People say, like when it's you know when it comes to abortion or something like that, that the evangelical church will will fight hard for its case. But then once that baby is now five or six or seven, then then it's a different story, and people don't want to live in the same neighborhoods or whatever or contribute. So anyway, that's something to be thinking about. And the image of God has a lot to say. Uh, prison reform, 
racism. So these are issues that hit both sides of the aisle hard. Uh, any kind of oppression, all of these come back from a Christian worldview. You have to look at what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, and I think of, uh, there's, there's this hypocrisy here, but how does Ch Thomas Jefferson's line go in the Declaration of Independence, right? That, you know, all men are created equal, with certain unalienable rights, pursuit of happiness, liberty, and all this stuff. That philosophy, that idea that is so true comes largely from this Judeo-Christian idea of the image of God. And we need to be moving more and more in that direction. And we can give it lip service, but I, I learned recently, uh, I think it was in a New York Times podcast that while Thomas Jefferson was writing those lines, literally while he was writing them, he was being attended to by a slave that he owned. And it's just like the hypocrisy, right, to, to, to champion the idea that we are all equal in the image of God, but to also own a slave, right? So this is, this is part of uh, the heritage of the American church, that there was a lot of this going on. Not Thomas Jefferson specifically, but others. So the image of God, I might say, is, is one of the most important issues to be thinking on, to be praying on, and what it means for how we live our lives. It doesn't conform nicely to the right or to the left, but in a Christian worldview, if you can follow the image of God out, just follow, I mean, follow that out. Don't bother about whichever side of the aisle you're on. God has put his image on you. The world only respects people whose image, you could say, is after the stamp of this world the modern-day kings and queens, celebrities, whatever. But that's not what matters in God's view. And I want to encourage you that the next time you get passed over or forgotten or overlooked, say, in whether it's job applications or whatever, whatever sort of, in, in whatever way you can feel overlooked, I want to say that if, if somebody else seems more impressive in the world's eyes, I just want you to, to remember that you are made in God's image. You're made in God's image. Give him back everything. There is truly nothing you can actually do. <laughs> I find comfort in this, even though it's a little bit, uh, it could, could sound depressing to some people. There's truly nothing you can do to actually serve God as if he needed it. So you can serve God, but there's nothing you can actually do to serve him as if he needed it, because all of your abilities actually are from him. So all of your abilities came from him. So anything you do for God in service of him is it's just a thanks to him, which he appreciates, but he doesn't actually need you to like, you know, move so many rocks for him or something, right? Like all of your ability, it comes from him. And Jesus says to give to God what is God's. So uh, give to God all that is his, uh, your intelligence, your work ethic, your career, your family life, your, your finances, your education. Um, you know, if all of these things are from God, sometimes people will be like, well, no, I, I actually worked really hard for my life or my career or this or that. And though that's true, even your work ethic is from God or from your good upbringing. Like you could have been born to an abusive parent in the poorest country in the world and had a really rough go of it, but you weren't, right? So even so much of what we even count as our own doing, like, well, I worked hard and I got myself into that college. A lot of that is just a pure gift from above. And it, it of course, it took your... Um, your part in that as well. But so much of our life is actually a gift that we had no choosing what era we'd be born into, what state or country, whether we'd have you know, a healthy family life, be encouraged to go to college or not, or whatever it might be. Everything you have was given by God, so give back to him what's his. Now, this doesn't mean to be a servant or slave to God as if you owe him something. That's exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to say here. 
But what, I'm, what I mean is that God actually created us to worship something, right? Some people call this like the God-shaped vacuum in our heart, and our soul. We are made to worship something or someone, but he's made it that so really only one being can handle being worshipped appropriately, and that's God himself. We're made to worship, and if you look hard enough, you'll see this, that we often just think of people of faith as being worshipers, but irreligious people worship just as much, and, and we also worship idols just as much, frankly, as irreligious people do. Uh, believer, believers and atheists, uh, in a, you know, they, they all find something to worship, whether it be intellect, influence, power, health, uh, history, art, whatever it might be, and all of those things, though there's beauty in them, they're also just incomplete. They're, they're broken vessels. And if you place your worship, your hope, your faith in these things, they will eventually ruin you. These things do destroy if you put your worship in them. God has made us to worship only Him because it's only then that we can truly live. He said that He, he came to give us life and to give us life in abundance. And uh, if our worship lands on ourselves, our own vain interests, our own perceptions of what's important. It comes to destroy us. A good example of this, uh, think of, don't name names, but think of any Hollywood star who grew up like famous and worshipped as a kid. There's just a couple of them who have maybe grown up okay, but so many people who, you know, if someone became famous in their 30s, they might, you know, be all right, they might have a chance because they're formed, but a lot of kids who grew up you know, under the spotlight. It just ruins them because they are the object of worship. They are the object of adoration. And all the idols of the world, all these objects of adoration can just be broken cisterns or, or broken coins with whatever image of, of the weak on them. So I just want to say, let the world have its own broken goods. This is what Jesus is saying. Let the world have its own broken goods back, its own you know, passing coins. Let it have its idolatry back, but give all of yourselves to God. This Tiberius, who had these coins stamped, claimed to be the son of the divine. And the irony is not only thick in that, that it's Jesus looking at this coin, but that he was not actually the son of Augustus. So right on the coin, it says that he's the divine son of Augustus, but he was actually a more distant relative who was just sort of grafted in because he was the least bad of all the options for who should become you know, all, the, all the emperors. I guess uh, emperors had one of the uh, worst life expectancies of anyone in the ancient world because of all the murder and all the power games. And so um, Tiberius was brought up as, as emperor just because all the others had been killed off or killed each other off or they thought that they were going to kill someone, so he got the role, but he was like a distant relative to Augustus. And uh, I, think, I think the irony here is that he was trying desperately to assume this sonship of the emperor. You know, he desperately wanted this divine status. And uh, he did actually, when he became emperor, he had a few good years. He, he seemed to have his head on him for a few good years, but then the power and worship ended up driving him completely mad, and I mean clinically mad. You've heard the, the phrase that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, somebody, I, I said this to somebody once, and they thought what that phrase meant is power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, like rather than corrupts in its fullness, like absolutely, the, full, the fullness of the person. Uh, so Tiberius ended up going actually mad. He ended up holed up on this island, and he built dozens of halls for, uh, because of age, the ages in this room here, I'll just say, dozens of halls for love festivals, 
uh, and even more for torture chambers. And these two things, love festivals and torture chambers, ended up taking up most of his time and his effort. Uh, just a very sick man. He would take prisoner after pr prisoner at whim, do horrible things to them, and then throw them off a cliff. This is how he spent the last six years of his life. You can Google it to read more about it. He absolutely, he just became this monster, and he is the monster who's on these coins that are being handed to Jesus, the one who claims to be divine. Idolatry and sin turn people into monsters. This need or this, uh, or actually successfully being worshipped by people will turn you into a monster. Or for the childhood, you know, young star, it'll ruin their lives. And at the end of Tiberius's life, when they thought he was dying, uh, they made the plan for who would be next. That's where Caligula comes into place, and that's just such a weird name that you, you might remember it. Uh, Caligula comes after him, which wasn't his real name, but apparently when he was like, at the battle scenes as a little kid, just like following his dad around, he was the only little kid that wasn't barefoot. He had special boots made for him because he was, you know, Roman... Uh, whatever, noble, 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 nobility, is that a word? No, no, nobility, there we go. Um, and he had these little boots made for him, and those are called Caligulas, and so his name stuck, and he's Emperor Caligula. Anyway, so Tiberius, that he was dying, and they made way for this Caligula to be named after him. And then at the last moment, Tiberius all of a sudden got better, like they thought he was gonna die and pass away. And all of the people, all of the guards, all of the local the people kind of keep up the palace, were so just beside themselves that this terrible person finally was going to die and then woke up again uh, that the leader of his own elite guard took blankets and smothered him in his own bed so that he would not go on to live. The streets of Rome danced for days when they got the news that this guy was gone. And it's just like, there's your king, right? There's, there's your, your Caesar. And now... The world has utterly forgotten him. I didn't know any of that stuff. I had, to, I had to figure out who this guy was. Like, Wikipedia, you know, tell me more about this Tiberius. The world has, has forgotten him. And the irony is that here's a guy who had his face on coins, right? And that except for, you know, the occasional Roman historian, uh, Tiberius really mostly only lives on in the pages of the New Testament. We really only know who he is because he's got a few um, call-outs, a few mentions in the New Testament, where the true son of God, you know, not some stepson, not some attempter, not a recluse or an abuser or murderer, but Jesus, the true son of God, came to save all of humankind, and he has put his image on all of us. Jesus is this true son of God who redeemed his image within all of us, and he is the only God, the only proper object who is worthy of our worship, and he's the only object of our worship who can handle it and actually where it's appropriate for him to be worshipped, rather than you know, worshipping these idols which make people go mad. Jesus is, is the only God, the only proper object we can worship, and if you find yourself worshipping anything else, I mean, clearly you're not doing like a seance in your apartment, but you know, by giving your, your love and your time to other things, uh, you can find yourself worshipping them. And if you give yourself to those things, you will slowly begin to go mad, or at least become unhealthy. Give the world its own passing goods, but give to God what's his. Give God all of you. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, amazing, clever parable that reminds us of your image in all of us, Lord. We pray that we would focus on this, that we would zero in on what it means to be made in your image and what it means for those 
uh, around us, that they are made in your image as well. We pray that we would treat others as you would have us uh, treat them and as we wish they would treat us, Lord. We pray that we would lead out knowing what it means to be in the image of God. Uh, we just uh, pray over this night. pray that everyone would have a safe drive home. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com. Our music today, Slow Burn, was written and produced by Kevin McLeod under the Creative Commons 4.0 license. <laughs>